this episode, I talk with Dr. Melissa Jean, Assistant Professor of Mindfulness Studies at Lesley University. This episode is filled with new ways of thinking about our work in higher education in a more contemplative and holistic way. From mindfulness writing practices to seeing students as whole and complete. This episode was recorded in April 2020 during the initial COVID-19 shutdown orders across the United States. That said, given that I was speaking with Dr. Jean by phone, you may hear some sounds in the background that are indistinguishable. I suggest you just go with it because, well, 2020 was just that year. Enjoy this episode of 824. Welcome to this episode of 824. Today, my guest is Dr. Melissa Jean, Assistant Professor of Mindfulness Studies at Lesley University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jean. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk to you. To interview a professor from Naropa University. And so I'm just really interested in how what this looks like, particularly at the undergrad graduate level. So tell us about this work. What is mindfulness studies? And maybe even tell us how it's connected to your degree in ecosystem science. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's not necessarily connected. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we, um, at Leslie, we have the first um, mindfulness studies master's program. Um, and we, we offer both a master's degree and a graduate certificate, which is uh, fewer courses. Um, and it's really just a study of like the history and practice of mindfulness and of applications of mindfulness in a variety of um, settings and workplaces, different kinds of work. Um, so most of our students already have an established career in education or healthcare or nonprofit work or some other um, some other thing, and they're looking to integrate mindfulness into it um, to better serve the people that they work with and also to just deepen their own practice and understanding of what mindfulness can do for them um, in all the areas of their life. Uh, so we have, it's, it's just always a really interesting mix of people. We have people doing all sorts of different work and um, bringing their passion for mindfulness to their work out in the world. Um, so the program's been around for about five years. And when it when we started, I was just an adjunct professor teaching one writing class for the program. Um, and then my, my role has just kind of grown as the program has grown. So I do still teach academic writing. And I also advise all of our thesis students on their two class thesis journey to create a capstone project. Um, and then I also teach mindfulness in the environment. So that's where the, that's where the PhD in environmental studies comes in. Okay. Um, and I teach mindful creative writing. I've, my master's was in creative writing. So, um, so it's been really great to have the chance over the last few years as I've developed more courses to really integrate my background in creative writing and um, environmental studies with, um, with my interests in mindfulness. Interesting. So what does one learn in a mindfulness studies program? Yeah, so students take um, classes in um, theory and practice of mindfulness and in 
you know, they learn about diff- the history of mindfulness, both through Buddhism and through other contemplative practices. Um, they also learn about um, neuroscience. So it's a very, you know, it's, it's an academic program. So they learn about neuroscience. They learn about like engaging with academic debates about mindfulness in different fields and different contexts. Um, and then every student also um, does a silent retreat um, and does an internship in a place of their choosing where they either you know share mindfulness content with the internship site or just bring their mindfulness practice to bear on the service learning work that they do and then every student produces a thesis which can either be a standard academic thesis or a creative project so we've had students do everything from you know develop curricula to create like poetry collections and rap albums like we've just had students do so many different amazing things for their thesis project because they're encouraged to bring um, their deepening mindfulness practice and expertise to bear on whatever their interests are and really bring that along with them and show up in the world in the way that they're trying to do more authentically. Awesome. So how did you come to this work? Uh, Yeah, it's sort of kind of a weird path, (laughs) honestly. Um, I, I, you know, my, my undergrad was in psychology my master's is in creative writing, my PhD is in environmental studies. So sort of a sort of a grab bag of things already. Um, and then when I when I got this job teaching writing, um, that was when really like, I, I already had sort of a casual interest in mindfulness before that, but that was when my knowledge started to deepen and I started to, you know, really dig into the academic literature about what mindfulness offers. And I was able to, you know, do training programs myself and um, develop my capacity to to teach all of these things. So it's been it's been such an interesting sort of like winding path of um, finally being able to integrate all of my interests. Um, and and you know we're, we're it it also feels so in process too. Um, but there is a sense of like being able to teach, for example, you know, in addition to teaching at Leslie, I also do a lot of community education, especially with mindful creativity, um, as well as mindfulness in the environment. And then and then at the juxtaposition of those, like mindful nature writing is one of my very favorite things to teach. Um, and it and it feels great to be sort of bringing all of these different things into dialogue and in ways that really speak to people, because I think there's something so um there's so something so elemental about the the drive to be creative and to feel connected to the earth. Um, and mindfulness practices are an avenue for deepening that and being able to really explore some of those things that people just intuitively want to do. So what is mindful creativity? So I, I ask that because I um, interviewed a professor of music theory and music studies at the University of Michigan, uh, Ed Sarah. And he talked a lot about um, how contemplative studies and mindfulness are inherent in the world of music and to music theory. Um, mm, interesting. And, and discussed sort of the ways in which um, creativity itself sort of functions as a contemplative practice. And so I'm just... Mm-hmm to what is mindful creativity? Yeah, yeah, well, so, I mean, there is a lot of emerging evidence, just, you know, the scientific um, conversation around mindfulness is really booming right now. There's so constantly so much um, 
data and theory being produced about the ways that mindfulness affects different parts of the brain and affect different, you know, affects people in different fields. Um, and there is some research being produced about mindfulness and creativity that like explains some of the ways that a mindfulness practice can increase focus, can increase creative thinking and creative problem solving. Um, so, you know, so there's evidence for it. And also just a lot, but a lot of what I teach is like experiential is the ways that I've been able to develop mindfulness practices that enhance my writing and also develop writing practices that enhance my sense of mindfulness. So I view, I mostly teach creative writing. Um, although like, I think a lot of these practices apply to any sort of creative endeavor. Um, but I, I view creative writing and mindfulness as sort of like in a bi-directional relationship with each other. Um, I think that you can use intentional writing practices to deepen your sense of groundedness in the present moment. And you can also use meditation and mindfulness practices to help yourself be present and observing in such a way that you can describe what's happening around you with more clarity um, and with more creativity. Um, so in the, like in the mindful creative writing classes that I teach, we just, we just mostly do a ton of practicing. We try, cause, and the same things don't work for different people, right? So there's this real element of like trying different things, trying them in different orders, trying different practices and just seeing what happens. It's a really like, it's a really fun um, nexus to work at because it's so emergent. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like which practice is going to spark something for a person. Um but they're really like at their core, they're just ways of getting clearer and more specific about the experiences that we have, like both mindfulness and writing. That's sort of what we're doing. We're just trying to get present enough that we can see clearly and understand what's happening. Um, and if we can do that, then we can describe it better with more specificity and more, you know, in a way that's interesting to other people and with the clarity about our own voice. Um so that's a lot of what I do when it, when I'm teaching that. Yeah. So, so what does maybe day one or day two of a mindful creative writing class look like? I'm curious if maybe there is a, like a short practice that you could take us through right now. Oh, sure. Um, like, like describe or like lead through. Yeah, either one, like whatever speaks to you right now. I'm just, I'm really interested in this because I, you know, for academics and scholars who listen to this podcast, just having a, a small little uh, helper in terms of what mindful creative writing looks like, how do we get present in our writing will be helpful for anyone who engages in writing for their, their job or just someone who is looking to pick up journaling. I think just hearing a little bit about how we get more present to our writing. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I think like, um, may, I'll just probably just describe instead of like talking all the way through something. Um, but I think one of like one really useful practice when you're very first getting started with experimenting with this is just to sort of cultivate like short mindful pauses throughout the day. So a lot of people feel like in order to be a mindfulness practitioner, you have to like block out an hour every single day and, you know, like buy a fancy cushion and <laughs> download all of the apps on your phone. Right. And have like this very disciplined practice. Um, but and and all, that's a wonderful thing to do, obviously. But I also think that we can get really good creative benefits from just like 
short spurts of mindfulness throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing that can work is like, I mean, and the bigger, the bigger the mindfulness practice you develop, the easier it'll be to, to like quickly ground yourself into a mindfulness pause during the day. Um, but just developing a habit of taking brief, you know, two, three, five minute breaks where you just breathe and ground and center yourself. And you can even have sort of like, um, like triggers set up for it. So maybe every time you come to a stoplight, I guess a lot of us are fewer stoplights nowadays, but when you come to a stoplight, maybe that's an opportunity to do a brief pause and breathe, or, you know, maybe every time you hang up your phone during the day, that's an invitation to take two minutes and do a brief pause. Um, and sort of building these moments in small spurts throughout your entire day. And then once you have some habit created around like what it feels like to just show up in the present moment, become very intimate with your breath, like notice what's happening for you with a lot of creativity and gentleness, um, then you can start to also, um, experiment with what that does for your writing practice. So like one thing that I, um, have my students do is we practice with um doing brief mindfulness pauses and like free writing in different orders so like what does it feel like if you do a five minute mindfulness pause and then write in your journal for 10 minutes how's the experience different if you write in your journal for 10 minutes and then do a a mindfulness pause how is it different if you pause for mindfulness then write then pause or if you write then pause then write (laughs) Um, so just experimenting with like doing things in different orders Mm -hmm. and seeing um, how it changes, like how integrating writing into those mindfulness pauses, how it changes both the experience of the mindfulness and the experience of the writing. Um, And I can never really say, you know, like which one is going to result in which kind of experience for you because it's so individualized and it just depends. Um, and then once, so once we've done some of that, once we've started just experimenting and practicing, and I find it so helpful to bring like a lot of playfulness to this practice too, you know, and just a really curious, like, well, let's just see what happens, you know, in a way that sort of like loosens perfectionism and the inner critic that are such impediments, um, to writing freely and well and authentically. Um, so just once you have sort of this playful sense of like, I'm going to try it this way today and see what happens. And then you can start to expand um, what those mindfulness pauses look like too. So maybe instead of doing, you know, a five minute mindful sit, maybe you want to do five minutes of mindful walking and then write, or maybe you want to write and then do five minutes of mindful walking, or maybe you want to, you know, drink a cup of tea very mindfully and then write, or maybe you want to wash the teacup very mindfully and then write. So it's just, it's just really developing this sort of like, experimental attitude where there's nothing prescriptive about any of these practices you're just really like engaging consistently and in different like experimental ways um, with practices that develop this bi-directional relationship between mindfulness and writing and then seeing what that does to your focus and to your sense of creativity and to your you know your clarity about what you're trying to write and describe yeah, I will certainly uh, begin uh, implementing this practice. Um, typically, I find myself just coming to my cushion maybe once or twice a day to meditate for about 25 minutes, thinking that that's going to get me through my entire day. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when you are sort of tackling 
writing projects often as an academic, I think it's uh, important that we do attempt to um, be more mindful in how we are taking these breaks. And so I think I will be, the second we hang up here today, I think I'm going to engage in a more habit forming or intentional form of, of mindfulness with these two to five minute breaks in between my writing. Thank yeah, you. I love, I love that. I, I mean, I find it so helpful also just for sort of refocusing, you know, writing can be such a, such a heady enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so just sort of like remembering that like writing is also a body practice, right? Like we're using, whether we're writing with a pen or typing, like we're using our hands, we're in a posture. Um, like writing is not just a brain practice. It's also something we're doing with our body. So what are ways that we can like consciously bring our body and our breath into that practice um, instead of sort of, you know, being so in our head about it that we, for, that we forget that we're, that our body is part of the writing process. Yes. Oh my gosh. I don't think I've ever considered that. That is, you're amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Ever considered the fact that writing is also a body practice, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing all this exploration around mind, body, spirit work and attempting to write about it. I have in some way, I guess, disembodied myself from even recognizing that my body is part of the work, right? That- yeah, yeah, absolutely. We all do that. Because I and I think especially like with academics, we can get into this real space of feeling like our bodies are just sort of carrying cases for our brains, you know, like, what we really have, you know, that like academics is just like a purely mental endeavor. And what we have to offer in terms of our expertise is just mental. Um but we're not like we're we're whole people and and we're doing everything that we do through our bodies, every conversation we have, every page that we write. Um, and so I, for me, like being just being really more realistic about that fact with myself leads to a much like stronger sense of well-being. Um, and there's so many fun ways to play around with it, too. Like if you're wanting to be, a, you know, an embodied writer, like um, one of the things that I do with my students is we, we practice like breath work while doing free writing. So like, what does it feel like to write a sentence and then stop and like take a full deep breath and then write another sentence and then stop and take another full deep breath. Like how, how does playing with breathing while you write influence your sense of flow and your sense of clarity? Um, What does it feel like to write in different position, you know, like in different physical positions in different physical spaces um, write with a different kind of pen than you're used to. I, like really the whole creativity is just about like playful experimentation, right? At its core. Um, so any way that you can sort of shift like the way that you're experiencing your body as you're trying to be creative is, is likely to produce some sort of shift in the experience of the creativity itself. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, and also, this really helps me contextualize now a bit what a bit uh, about creativity studies. One of my really good mm-hmm. friends, about a year or so ago, completed a master's in creativity studies, and for the longest, I was like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> like, <laughs> what exactly did you get a degree in? Um, uh-huh. <laughs> and he attempted to explain it to me. I was just like, I this is not resonating. Like, I'm not, this isn't making sense to me. But uh-huh. Everything that you just shared around creativity, um, I think, is has helped me to contextualize it a bit better as to what he has been attempting to explain to me. And so 
I can now right. him and say, okay, I think I get it. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. That sounds like a really cool program. And like, I always emphasize too, or I try to emphasize to my students, we think of creativity as being like a thing that you only use for certain kinds of writing, right? Like, you know, if you're writing poems, you're being creative, but every kind of writing involves creative, like creative problem solving and creative thinking. Even if you're writing, you know, an essay or a research paper, like you are still making decisions about how to like, you know, how to integrate different sources in your literature review, how to place different sources into conversation with each other, like the sort of analysis you do, your organization, all of that is creative work too. And all of that is, you know, you're doing that in a way that only you would do it. Um, so all of these tools, like, you know, they're not just for poets, they're for anybody who's really creating anything, which is what we're all doing. <laughs> Yeah. all the time right we're all sort of just like constantly engaged in a creative dialogue with the world and with other people and you know all of us are doing it with our unique stamp the ways that we form relationships the ways that we write research papers whatever it is we're doing um and so grounding ourselves into like a, an orientation of noticing um the ways that we exercise our creativity in all the different realms um, is just a way of deepening our experience of it. So why practice mindfulness and creativity within higher ed? Yeah. Um, I, again, I just think it's so, I think we like silo creativity at our own risk, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, because everything, everything we do in higher ed is creative. Um, you know, I look at like the thesis projects that my students create, for example, and we do like the whole, the development of the thesis projects involves um, contemplative practice at every stage. So not only are we, you know, becoming well acquainted with the pre-existing literature on the topic and identifying a gap into which a student can situate their project, but we're also doing a lot of contemplative um <laughs> practices to sort of like notice the way that our positionality in the world affects the way we're engaging with this topic, um, uncover our own biases, which mindfulness um, can be a great practice for um, like identifying and grappling with implicit biases that we hold. Um, and also just thinking about like how this project supports our showing up in the world in a way that promotes like a vision for how the world could be. Because all of that's creative work too, right? Like the ways that we, the ways that we choose to do our work, the ways that we choose to um, like dream about the world that we'd like to see our work contributing to, all of that is also creative. All of it is sort of this, you know, visioning of a, of a future um, that we want to be contributors to. So I think, you know, I also like work with a lot of people who are really interested in bringing contemplative practices, weaving those more deeply into the fabric of higher education mm. um, because of the ways that contemplative practice, you know, like deepen empathy and um, help, help us confront implicit bias and um, help us do our work. Like I almost said the word better, but that doesn't feel like quite the right word in this context. Just like do our work more holistically mm. and more, more humanely. And uh, something that really interests me is creating like humane environments in higher education where students are whole people. Um, 
and where we're able to like create spaces for people to show up as whole people um, and, you know, and communicate honestly with each other. Um, I think sometimes we, um, it's, it's hard, right? It's hard with like the workloads that we have in higher ed to create those spaces, to put the energy into creating those spaces, but contemplative practices, integrating those into our work is one way of showing students like you, you matter as an entire person. Um, and I want you to be in this space as your whole self, not just as like a, a grade manufacturer, yeah. right? Like <laughs> I want you to bring all of yourself to your education and to your work. How do we utilize contemplative practices and mindfulness to help us have more critical conversations about climate change and the environment? Like what, yeah, I'm just gonna leave it there. <laughs> how, do we, how do we begin to engage mindfulness practices or utilize mindfulness practices to help us have those more critical conversations? Right. Um, it's such a good question. It's luck. I'm so lucky. It's easy for me <laughs> because, um, because I'm in a mindfulness studies program. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so, so it's, that's, that's just good luck on my part that it's, you know, everything we do is oriented around bringing contemplative studies um, into all of these conversations. Um, but there are also a lot of people who are doing interesting work in different fields. Um, and it can be anything from just, you know, um, developing like short practices that give students some experience with mindfulness to sort of ground them and help them focus um, all the way up to like integrating contemplative practices into like all, all stages of a course. And, it, you know, it's not that can't be done in all fields, probably with the same facility as it's done with mine. Um, there's an organization called the Association for Contemplative Mind in Higher Education, um, which is um, an initiative of C-Mind. Um, but they have conferences, they have webcasts, they have a journal um, that's published um, and lots of resources available for higher educators who are trying to figure out how to bring contemplative practices to their students. Um, so that's a resource I would definitely recommend for people who are looking for practical ideas on how to do this. Um, but then of course, like the core of it is if you're an educator who's wanting to share contemplative practices with students, the starting point is always developing a practice yourself um, because with mindfulness, we teach what we know, right? Or we teach what we have experienced personally, like the teaching grows out of our own practice. So the starting point, you know, all of there are all of these like helpful pedagogical tools out there for helping you figure out the specifics of how to integrate contemplative studies. But the the core of it is really like developing a practice for ourselves um, and figuring out what, uh, you know, whether we term it a mindfulness practice or a contemplative practice, like building some of those tools and skill sets in ourselves so that we can then um, just like show up embodying those practices and those principles in all of our interactions with students. So not only building it into our syllabi and into our course material, but also um, like embodying it in our conversations with students and in, in the ways that we, um, the kinds of pedagogy that we choose, the ways of interacting that we choose with our students. Mm -hmm. And so uh, would you say that it allows for more mental flexibility? And I ask that thinking about um, when we're thinking about 
engaging in diversity, equity, and within higher education or even outside of higher education. Um, that utilizing our contemplative practices or our mindfulness practices allows for us to um, enhance our mental flexibility in a way mm. that allows for us to be, um, I guess, more nuanced in our approaches or within our dialogue to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. support us towards uh, decolonizing de or destructuring systems that have. Mm -hmm been set up in ways that privilege some and not others. Yeah. Yeah. I love the way you phrase that question. And it's definitely my experience, like, like in a very personal way, when I first started teaching at a university level, I was always like um, hyper-structured um, in the ways that I approached lecturing and assignments and student interactions. It was like, I wanted, you know, I would have like everything that I was going to say in a session laid out exactly. Um, and if there was like, if, if something came up that we couldn't get to everything or that I had to deviate from it, I found that really stressful. Um, and learning like mindfulness facilitation skills has really sort of transformed that for me. Um, I feel a lot because, you know, you don't go, if you're teaching a mindfulness session, you don't necessarily go in with like a super structured experience and you know you're trying to you're trying to come into the space and create conditions under which students can have their own liberatory experience right when you're teaching mindfulness so I like integrating that into my um academic teaching has been really interesting and I find myself a lot more able now to like adapt to what is needed in the room in the moment rather than sort of like rigidly holding to my objectives for the lecture, I feel much more able to um, show up with that sort of, yeah, the mental flexibility you're talking about and see what comes up, you know, see what emerges um, and see what people, both what expertise everybody in the classroom has to bring to the space and, and the ways that they create that dialogue between each other. And also just, you know, be responsive to what like the, the learning and transformation needs are in the moment. Um, so for me, like pedagogically integrating mindfulness has been a really big shift, um, for, you know, for being able to like respond to those moments of emergence. Um, is that, is that part of what you're getting at? Yes. Uh, I think, so what you said there at the end is the transformation needs in the moment, right? And so um, yeah. I think in a lot of ways, particularly when we're thinking about, notions of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or social justice, or the implicit biases that you mentioned earlier, um, yeah. that there is sort of the very clear objective of what we are looking to do, um, what it is I want you to learn, uh, in the way I wish you to learn it, um, and that there is some lacking in terms of recognizing the transformation that's needed in the moment. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, right. And I recognize this in my own teaching practice as a diversity educator, that even within my courses, what I'm what I have outlined and look for what I look for students to learn and take away um, isn't necessarily what happens. One. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Right. But I do miss those opportunities of like the transformation that's needed in the moment. Right. In some ways. Uh -huh. like, uh, 
I don't necessarily have the full, the, the mental flexibility that I wish to have when I even recognize that there is a lot more growth in a room that my students need to do. And so right, um, right. particularly being positioned here in the deep South, right? Being here in South Louisiana, um, Mm -hmm. a lot of there's there are a lot of things life histories um sort of political identities cultural nuances that students bring in with them that that create uh tensions and struggles with the material taught in a diversity ed class um uh -huh. and i think i oftentimes miss even just recognizing the, the, what you said at the end there, the transformation that's needed in the moment, right? Like I'm looking for mm -hmm. the transformation that I want at the end of the class, not the transformation mm -hmm. that I need at 9 a.m. <laughs> for 9 a.m. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Well, I feel like a really transformational part of this for me too is like the way that mindfulness also permits me to be in progress, right? Like these contemplative practices also give this space for me to be like learning and growing rather than they, they loosen this sense that I have to be like at the front of the classroom as an expert, you know, because it's this very process oriented way of learning. Um, and I think about this a lot, you know, I mean, I, our program is, it's a master's program at a, at a liberal arts college. Like most of, most of our students have some amount of economic privilege. Most of them have racial privilege. Um, and so, and so, like, we're grappling together with what this means, you know, like with what the context that we're learning this in means, with what it means for taking it back to the context that they work in. Um, and we try to, I, like, I try to incorporate content on privilege and bias and positionality into every course that I teach. Not I try to, I do, because, because we're all grappling with this together, right? Like, we're learning about these things in a system um, that also contains all of these seeds of privilege. Right. Um, so how do we sort of like, how do we use these contemplative practices to be real about the context that we are learning the contemplative practices in um, and sort of be together in that and be open to learning from each other and learning, you know, um, the, the like the, the different people who are in a class with their different backgrounds and their different experiences. That's all that's all ground for practice to be together and to learn from each other and to, you know, um, listen deeply to the experiences that we've all had. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's part of the work too, is like letting myself also be in, in process and letting myself, you know, knowing that I'm going to get it wrong sometimes and, and, and learning how to apologize when I do and how to like adjust my practice. Um, you know, we've all got spots that we don't see clearly because of because of where we come from or how we were raised or, you know, like the work, we're all doing the work still. So giving each other some grace around that and, and um, being willing to all be in it together, um, I think is also an important part of it. Yeah. Um, and so let's uh, circle back a little bit here to mindfulness and environmental studies. What, okay. What is the connection of the two? Um, and I guess maybe even you'll talk a little bit about um, your mindful nature writing work that you do within the community. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just one of my favorite things to teach. Um, I mean, I, I think that mindfulness in the environment is like a really critical, crucial political topic right now. Um, it sort of, it comes across as kind of fluffy and, you know, like it, like some of the things that we do and when I teach mindfulness in the environment is like sit in a forest with a tree for an hour, you know? <laughs> and so like, but it's not, it's not a fluffy practice. It's like a deeply connective, like returning to our sense of our rootedness in, in the earth. Um, and it's, and it's super political because we're at a, we're at a crisis point ecologically. Um, and we've, you know, culturally we've adopted these, these attitudes and orientations toward the earth that are, that are going to destroy us if we can't, if we can't make some shifts, um, and learn to be part of the earth instead of insisting on our separateness and dominance all of the time. Um, so in like in my mindfulness in the environment course, um, my master's level course that I teach, part of the class is developing a nature-based mindfulness practice where we're taking our mindfulness skills and practice out into nature um, and like um, engaging in dialogue with the more than human um, through mindfulness practice. And then part of it is like looking at environmental problems, looking at some of the, the crisis points that we've driven ourselves to and saying like, how could a mindfulness lens that emphasizes presentness and awareness and accountability and interconnectedness, how can that transform what our conversations around environmental problems look like and also transform our practice, both as individuals trying to make more ethical environmental choices and as communities of people who really need to start transforming the way that we're doing things. Um, so yeah, so mindfulness both as like an individualized practice and also as a lens for transforming cultural attitudes toward the earth. Yeah. So maybe you can shed some light on this uh, for myself and for the listeners um, in terms of how our shifting uh, ways of being with the earth have impacted and affected particular communities. Um, I think it has been sort of talked about, theorized that the way in which our structures or our environment is changing and shifting that indigenous populations, communities of color um, are particularly impacted by those shifts. And so maybe mm -hmm. shed a little bit of light on that for us as to how or why that's happening. Yeah, absolutely. So, so like the field of environmental justice looks at this, right? The ways that environmental problems overlap with social problems and the ways that not all of community, not all communities are affected equally by the fallout of the, the environmental damage that humans have done. Um, and in fact, usually the people who bear the most responsibility for those environmental problems are the least likely <clears throat> to suffer the impacts of it, right? There's just this mass, you know, system of outsourcing environmental problems to people who have um, less control over where they go um, and what happens to the environment around them. So there's this, you know, there's both the fact that environmental problems and the health impacts of those um, are concentrated in areas where communities of color live, um, and there's also the part where like access to healing environmental spaces um, can also be a question of privilege, right? Um, so 
so it's so it's really important anytime we're talking about environmental problems to keep that in mind like we it's interesting it's like we it, it they are collective problems right like all of us are impacted by climate change but we're not all impacted in the same way it's similar to like i've been you know with um with the impacts of coronavirus um the last couple of months like it it is this collective experience it really reminds us that we are you know we're not like separate impermeable bodies <laughs> um we are like you know we're all in this together it's this very collective experience and at the same time its impacts are not hitting everybody the same way you know there's some people whose biggest impacts are boredom and uh, you know an impacted social life um where other people who have less control over their environment or who are doing necessary work um are experiencing the impacts of it in much more like embodied traumatic, you know, physically and economically traumatic ways. So, and it's like that with everything in, in this world that we've constructed, right? Like everything is a collective experience in some way, but not in the same ways. Um, and it's the same with the environmental crises that we manufacture. And does mindfulness bring us closer to this realization? It does for me. Um, mindfulness is definitely one of my, like one of the things that's most helped me develop this sense of interconnectedness and this sense of like, if one body in the organism is not well, the whole organism is not well, right? Um, it, it chips away at our notions of separateness. It chips away at like our sense of individualism. Um, and it brings us, you know, I think a mindfulness practice brings us into a more sort of compassionate relationship with ourselves and with other people where we can we can see those connections more clearly and they matter to us and we don't want to you know try to avoid and escape them because we see that they just are yeah so as you say that and you're talking about uh interconnectedness um i'm curious how you define spirituality and how you see a connection of spirituality to to the work you do within with creativity with uh, environmental studies how you think about um, spirituality with environmental justice as we just talked about yeah 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 this kind of it's a complicated question for me i i grew up in a um really conservative patriarchal religion um that sort of you know like taught me that spirituality meant a stifling of a lot of spiritual impulses in the name of obedience, sort of interestingly. Um, so, you know, some people, when they realize the religious system that they were raised with doesn't work for them, they do sort of like reformations, you know, they sort of like, well, like maybe I'll just live in this room of this house, or maybe I can do like a, a remodeling, you know, like repaint some walls or something. Um, and then other people have to really burn it all down, I think. Um, and start from scratch. And I did try the remodeling approach for a while and it didn't really work for me. So um, so I, I had to do kind of a complete burn down <laughs> um, of everything, of everything that I was raised to believe. Uh, and then like what rebuilding looked like was just sort of like following inklings of things, you know, sort of just like getting back to a place where I felt free to just notice um, like what I was feeling drawn toward or what I was longing for um, and then following those little inklings. 
So, but even still, even after like a lot of years of this process, the word spirituality can sometimes <laughs> give me a little bit of like a, you know, yeah. um, just because of that baggage. So, I, but I actually, I have like a, an academic definition of spirituality that I think defines it for me better than any other one that I've ever found. Um, do you mind if I read it? Yeah, give, give it to us. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's from PJ Palmer and I actually have it like, I think the first time I read this was in a student's thesis and I was like, oh, there it is. That's like the definition I've been looking for. And I have it written on a card that I refer to all the time. So PJ Palmer defines spirituality as the diverse ways we answer the heart's longing to be connected with the largeness of life, a longing that animates love and work, especially the work called teaching. I just think that's so beautiful and so perfect. It's just like all of, you know, anything any way that we answer these like inklings and these longings for connection and for, you know, being part of something bigger than ourselves. Um, all of that is spirituality. So it, it helps me to sort of like remove notions of spirituality from like systems of belief and just sort of settle it in my own heart and my own intuition and my own, you know, subtle longings and inklings. So for me, a lot of, spirit you know mindfulness is definitely one part of my spiritual practice and yoga is um, but also like sitting with trees that is a really key element of my spiritual practice like that's what I feel you know I feel drawn to like sit outside with the spring flowers I feel drawn to be in the forest I feel drawn to be listening to birds you know so all of those things are something those are longings that animate my love and work um, and I feel so fortunate that I get to that I get to teach about those things too, you know, that I get to like be engaged in so much dialogue with other people about these kinds of experiences. I love that. that. Would you mind reading that quote again? Yeah. Yeah. So spirituality is the diverse ways we answer the heart's longing to be connected with the largeness of life, a longing that animates love and work, especially the work called teaching. Just wanted to give uh, our listeners a chance to hear that again, because I think it is beautifully put. Um, and the particularly that line about the heart's longing to be connected. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's all striving for in very different ways. Um, and I don't know if there's an exact way to get to <laughs> connection or to have collective connection because there are so many tensions and struggles and resistances that arise, but I think it is that um, there is a longing from each uh, each uh, individual that walks this earth that to be connected. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course. As we wind down our time here, um, I'd like to ask my guests. Uh, to define some other words and in the way that speaks to them uh, the most. Um, and so I'm okay. going to present you with some other words and however you define them, um, it will be Dr. Melissa Jean's definition. Oh, okay. That feels like <laughs> a lot of pressure, but okay. <laughs> so how would you define healing? Healing. Um... I think healing is is the gradual process of metabolizing our experiences. Um, 
I think about metabolism a lot. And of course, you know, when you are spending a lot of time in the forest, you can't, you can't be avoidant <laughs> um, about what a thing it is, how the meta- the forest is just constantly metabolizing and transforming itself. Um, and I think our bodies do that. You know, we know that our bodies store trauma and store fear. Um, and so learning ways to allow those things to be there and mindfulness practice is one way of doing this, you know, allowing sort of giving our body permission to fully experience what happens to us and metabolize it rather than storing it up, um, you know, or learning to metabolize what has been stored up. I think that's a lot of what healing is, is just letting like the natural metabolic cycles of our bodies and the earth um, do the work that they know how to do intuitively. Yeah. Ooh, I love that. Getting out of the way of it. I have never heard it phrased as metabolizing experience. Um, you might be cited somewhere in a paper or an Instagram post <laughs> very soon. Um, yeah. <laughs> define liberation. Uh, liberation. It's just the best. Um, I think liberation is about getting, learning to recognize the ways that our internalized oppressions speak to us and the ways that we believe they're our own voice um, and learning to see that clearly for what it is and then and then learning new ways of talking to ourselves, learning new ways of like being with our thoughts and being with ourselves that don't re-entrench those deeply internalized oppressive voices. Yeah. Um, because then we can act different, right? Like then once we have like faith in ourselves and we've, you know, we've learned to see those controlling, those voices of control and oppression for what they are then we can, we can have more agency in how we choose to act and how we choose to engage with other people in the world. Mm, that's great. And the last one, how would you define courage? <sighs> that's a good one. Um, okay, this might sound kind of weird, but this is just what came to my mind <laughs> when you said it. I um, have been thinking so much lately about decomposition Um, as we're sort of in this moment of like social decomposition where a lot of structures that we thought were, you know, kind of unassailable are very rapidly um, falling apart and other possibilities are being revealed to us. I've been thinking about decomposition for such a long time. And I, you know, again, I think about it in the forest a lot where there's just this constant continuous cycle of growth and decomposition. And I've spent so much time thinking about what it means to live in a world where growth is our shared obsession right and where we have this sort of like cultural belief that we can just keep growing indefinitely and growing and growing um and we can't of course but we also we talk about growth as the thing that requires so much courage of us and it does sometimes but i just find myself thinking so much about the courage required for decomposition um Mm -hmm. and the courage to let ourselves let ourselves dissolve let ourselves fall apart let our beliefs fall apart and decompose let the you know the vision of the world that we thought was unassailable decompose I think that's even scarier (laughs) um, than growing but it's the same process it's just in it's just in reverse or flipped upside down or something right like decomposition and growth require each other Um, so I kind of find myself wanting to say that I think that courage is letting the decomposition happen letting ourselves be 
decompose, letting ourselves fall apart, letting ourselves be transformed and, um, and then having the, having the courage to like, look at what's left and be open to whatever it is that grows there. Um, Ooh, that was good. Well, I think that's a really good place to end um, and to give folks an opportunity to really think about what it means to have the courage to uh, decompose and dissolve and be okay with that and recognize that that also leads to transformation. Um, Mm -hmm. So thank you so much, Dr. Melissa Jean. I have truly enjoyed our time together. Yeah, this has been so nice. So nice to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. Awesome. And so if people wanted to uh, get in contact with you to learn more about your work or to maybe even learn more about what it means to decompose and dissolve as a human, (laughs) how can uh, folks get in contact with you? (laughs) So I I have a website, which is mostly just where I keep track of like uh, community teaching um, opportunities, but it's breatheoutside.com, B-R-E-A-T-H-E outside.com um and i also am on instagram which is an easier way to like send me a message um and that is breathe.outside on instagram and um i I post there about like things that i'm teaching which these days are obviously mostly online (laughs) learning opportunities um and i and then i just like post a lot of pictures of trees (laughs) basically um so yeah so i'm happy to happy to connect with other people who are who are interested in some of these same themes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it has been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for listening to this interview. And as always, if you would like to contact me, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Yoga for Social Justice. Be well. <laughs>